Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is Arnie Duncan. He is a non-resident senior fellow with the Brown Center on Education Policy here at Brookings and a managing partner with the Emerson Collective. He was the ninth U.S. Secretary of Education, serving in the Obama administration from 2009 through 2015. Prior to that, he was CEO of Chicago Public Schools for over seven years. Stay tuned after this interview for my discussion with Bruce Katz on the role of cities in addressing the refugee crisis in the Middle East and Europe. Secretary Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is my first Brookings uh, podcast, so really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, Fred, and hopefully we'll do some more of this together. So. That would be great, and it's great to have you at Brookings. It would be a lot of fun. A lot we can get done together. Well, let's talk about Chicago. I know that you are a Chicago native, and I will admit to you that I am not a Chicago native. I'm a Texas native, but my father and my grandfather are Chicago natives. So I'm very excited about Chicago, and so I'm glad to have you on to talk about your hometown. Uh, where would you like me to start? As, as a kid, uh, where, where things are today, what would be helpful? Well, let's, th- let's talk about what, uh, unfortunately, what's been in the news a lot with Chicago. It's something that you've called the time of crisis in Chicago. Why did you call this a time of crisis? Yeah, so uh, for me, it's been a, a very interesting and complicated time to come home. So I, I you know, grew up on the south side of Chicago and lived in Hyde Park. And uh, My dad taught the University of Chicago for over four decades until he passed. And my mother ran an inner-city tutoring program that was like less than two miles from our house, but uh, a world away, and raised my sister and brother and I as a part of a program. And that that experience absolutely shaped us, and we've all tried to follow in her footsteps in various ways. So for me, Fred, coming home now has been very, very bittersweet. It's great to be around, you know, people and families and communities that I've known about and cared and loved for so long. But it's also just a very, very difficult time for the city. And everywhere I go, whether it's talking to policymakers or politicians or to pastors or to guys on the street, um, everybody, everybody's saying it's never, the violence has never been worse, which is a little mind-boggling. And unfortunately, you know, uh, maybe not unfortunately, just the reality of, you know, places like the New York Times really started to cover this in depth. And so, uh, you know, people kept saying when I came home, you know, what, what was I going to do to help? What was I going to do to contribute? And so I think the best thing we can do is to create hope and opportunity and jobs, um, particularly on the south and west sides, and particularly for young black men who have basically been disenfranchised who have been on the streets. And if we can give them some chances to make, to earn a living in a legal economy, you know, not selling drugs, not on the street corners, um, I think we have a chance to do something pretty significant here. My fundamental belief is the police can't solve this by themselves, can't begin to, we can't arrest our way out of it. We have to create opportunity for young people in communities that have been marginalized for far too long. I definitely want to uh, explore with you some of your ideas for these opportunities, but let's first talk a little bit more about the unfortunate violence there. Uh, President Obama was recently in Elkhart, Indiana at a town hall, and a man stood up and he asked him about gun violence and gun issues and actually called out Chicago, uh, asking the president basically, you know, you know, Chicago has really strict gun control. Why is there so much gun violence in Chicago? What would you say to that kind of question? Why is there so much violence in Chicago? Well, there's a multitude of reasons. So first of all, yes, it is good Chicago has you know, strict gun control laws, but clearly guns just aren't born and created and made and purchased in Chicago. And unfortunately, you know, the state of Indiana is absolutely porous. And the, the flow of guns from Indiana, from place like, uh, places like Chuck's Gun Shop, uh, from the suburbs into Chicago, is just devastating. And the fact that people make their living this way 
is just it, it's it's uh, it's just mind-boggling to me. And so th- th- there's no way Chicago or frankly any other community can solve this by themselves. Uh, t- to be very very clear, it, you know, with a, you know just another horrific mass shooting recently in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Fred, we're the only industrialized nation on the planet. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that tolerates this level of gun violence. And it's a public policy choice that as a nation we, we make. And somehow we think this is an acceptable uh, rate of loss, an acceptable loss of life. And other nations, whether it's you know England or Canada or Australia, where my wife is from, have made very different public policy choices, and they simply don't have that level of gun violence. So let's just start and be very, very honest about that. This is a national issue. It's a national crisis. No one state or no one city can solve it by, by itself. So is there a gun problem? Absolutely. Does that gun problem exist at this level of magnitude in other nations? Absolutely not. Do they have our level of violence? Absolutely not. Um, having said that, uh, beyond the gun issue itself, which we can't need to take on, Again, what I say all the time is that young people with hope don't pick up guns. And how we really reach into neighborhoods and give young men a chance to make a living in the legal economy is just so important. I think far too often, particularly in places like the south and west sides of Chicago, the gangs basically have a monopoly. They're the only one hiring. Um, I've never seen a gang with a sign up saying, uh, you know, no workers needed. You know, we're full. <laughs> And rain, snow, sleet, shine, the middle of a freezing Chicago, you know, February morning or night, um, they're out there. And they just outwork the regular society. They're more strategic. They know those young guys at 10, 11, 12 who are starting to slip through the cracks. And they're, they're there for them. And I've been spending time um, since I've been home in the juvenile uh, uh, facility where they incarcerate young men who have committed crimes. I'm spending time the past two weeks in Cook County Jail. And just talking to young men and trying to understand their stories and, you know, what has happened or not happened in their lives. And the one young guy just said, Arnie, I just got tired of hearing my mother cry at night. And we couldn't pay the heat bill. We couldn't pay the the light bill. We weren't eating. And I had to go do what I had to go do. And I asked him, you know, did you have a mentor? Did someone ever offer you a summer job? And obviously it was like I was speaking a foreign language. Of course not. And I just think a lot of these, these young guys, they're, they're not bad kids. They're really not. Mm-hmm. And we have to create opportunities. So one thing we're doing with Emerson is funding 4,500, 4,500 approximately uh, summer jobs for teens this summer on the south and west sides. And just trying to create, again, a lot more opportunities for teens to be part of something positive who grow up in Englewood or grow up in North Lawndale or grow up in Austin. Let me, uh, let me throw some data uh, into the conversation. The uh, Great Cities Initiative at the University of Chicago, Illinois, found that 47% of 20 to 24-year-old black men in Chicago are out of school and out of work. Yeah, it's, Can- it, it's, a stunning, it's a stunning stat. And when you think about a city like Chicago, where basically half, half of young black men are disconnected from work and employment, it's staggering. And how do we have strong families? How do we have strong neighborhoods and communities if that's the case? You can't. You can't. And that's, as you know, Fred, that's the aggregate for the city. Mm-hmm. And some of the neighborhoods we're talking about, that percent is probably 75, 85, 90. Um, let me give you some more data that just, you know, uh, lets you know that the, 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 the significance of the challenge, or the degree of difficulty of the challenge. 
Last year, for all the homicides in Chicago in 2015, 74% went unsolved. 71% of homicides went unsolved. And of shootings that did not result in death and non-lethal shootings, 91% went unsolved. So if you shoot someone in Chicago, you have a 91% chance of walking away. We can, we can say Black Lives Matter. We can march. The reality is we don't value black lives that much, and our actions don't demonstrate a real commitment to protecting young people, to keeping them safe, to keeping them alive. Uh, how do you create jobs, say the 4,500 jobs that you talked about? How do you go into a community and, and actually create jobs that maybe aren't there before that are attractive to um, these young people to spend their summer doing this job? Yeah, so, so they're just amazing young people in Chicago. And again, the, the, uh, it's just so important for your listeners to understand the over, overwhelming majority of young people are trying to do the right thing every day and actually, you know, honestly heroic and beating the odds and, you know, staying in school and working hard and staying, you know, trying to stay away from the, the madness, you know, on the streets and the communities. So the truth is that you have, you know, uh, you know, thousands of kids each summer who are looking for summer employment, and the city runs a pretty good summer jobs program, but just has long waiting lists. So we're just simply adding to the summer employment opportunities in these neighborhoods. So if they were, you know, working through the Chicago Public Schools, working through the Chicago Public School District, uh, moving, working through nonprofits and social service agencies working through a, a fantastic program called After School Matters that the, the former mayor, uh, uh, Mayor Daly's wife, Maggie Daly, uh, created. We're just adding slots um, in these communities that are most impacted by violence. So the kids are there, the kids are there, the need is there, the opportunity has not been there, and that's what we're trying to add to the mix. You were just at an event with uh, the singer Common and with the musician Yo-Yo Ma. What was that all about? So uh, Yo-Yo Ma is someone I'm uh, real respectful and done a little bit with him in the past. Common is someone I just have ex- extraordinary respect for. He's a good friend. Um, he's from the south side of Chicago. People may not know his mother was one of the best principals I had in the Chicago public schools. I don't say this lightly. We had 600 schools. She was probably in our top you know, 10, top 15 principals in the entire city. Ran an amazing school um, in the heart of the south side in the inner city. And he's someone who's never forgotten where he's come from. He is tremendous social consciousness. And we were meeting with a number of fantastic high school students who are part of the NICPA Challenge program um, uh, with the XQ initiative. And XQ is, is uh, funded by also by the Emerson Collective. Uh, my good friend and former colleague at the Department of Education, Russell and Ali, is running that program. It's basically challenging the nation to rethink the high school experience and to make it more relevant and meaningful and impactful for, for our nation's teens and really trying to have the youth voice and community voice drive this conversation. So it was a chance for, for Yo-Yo and for Common and I, frankly, to do very little talking, but to do a lot of listening and just hearing the stories of young people and what they want from their schools and what they're trying to accomplish each day. Um, they're amazing, just amazing young people. And obviously, while I'm a little bit biased to Chicago, they are everywhere. I spent, obviously, the past seven years traveling the nation, listening to young people. And I was consistently, you know, inspired and for all the challenges would leave those visits hopeful because these young people are working so hard to build positive futures for themselves and to help others. And the thing that really just hit me, I mean, a couple of things uh, stood out from that conversation. 
but just the young people's commitment, not just to being successful themselves, but to giving back to the community, to helping others. It was unbelievable to hear. It was totally unsolicited that, yes, they wanted to do more and experience more and have more opportunities than maybe their siblings or their neighbors or their parents had had. But the goal was not to get out and escape. The goal was to create opportunities for others as well. And just very, very powerful. You talked just now about rethinking the high school experience. Um, obviously, you've been a leader in education in Chicago and nationally, internationally, for decades. Talk about the role of early childhood education uh, for, for kids' future success. Yeah, well, I could talk about that for an hour, so I'll, <laughs> I'll try not to. But <laughs> I say everywhere I go that the best investment we can make, the best use of any single tax dollar, is in creating more opportunities for high-quality preschool. And it's just a life-transforming experience. And folks like James Heckman, who's a Nobel uh, Prize-winning economist at the University of Chicago, a lot smarter than me, has studied this forever and came to it as a skeptic. And he's now like the greatest proponent of early childhood education, talks about a seven-to-one return on investment, seven-to-one ROI. For every dollar we invest as a nation, we give back $7, less incarceration, less crime, less teenage pregnancy, more high school graduates, more folks going on to college and completing college, more folks going into the world of work. And Fred, for every tax dollar you and I and all your listeners spend, how many do we as a, as a society, as a nation, do we get back $7 for each dollar we spend? So I was so proud at the Department of Education that we were able to invest more than a billion dollars um, to increase opportunities for hundreds of thousands of kids in states across the country. Um, I can't remember how many states I went to. We went everywhere working very hard. So that part, I was absolutely thrilled with. The president was an amazing proponent, obviously, as well. The challenge, though, Fred, is relative to other industrialized nations, we still rank like 28th or 29th in terms of providing access to our three and four-year-olds. And it's something that for all the progress, we should be ashamed of. And we need to invest you know, significantly more to give children a chance. The average child from a poor family, from a disadvantaged community, the average child starts kindergarten 12 to 16 months behind. And frankly, we don't always do a good job of catching them up. And the fact that we will allow so many five-year-olds to start school you know, in September, you know, this fall, fall 2016, allows that, you know, hundreds of thousands to start kindergarten a year to 16 months behind, it's just not fair. It's not fair. And so very proud of the progress but a long way to go. And this is, this is in our nation's best interest. This is not a Republican idea or a Democratic idea or Arnie Duncan idea or President Obama idea. This is the right thing for kids. It's the right thing to strengthen families. It's the right thing to strengthen uh, communities. It's the right thing if we want to be competitive in a globally competitive uh, economy. Um, we have to make these investments early and stop playing catch-up after the fact. We have to get out of, we have to get out of the catch-up business. Thinking about uh, being in Chicago and being at the national level, what kinds of institutional and governance problems are you seeing that uh, might be uh, barriers to some of the, the goals at the Emerson Collective and that you are trying to achieve? Well, I, I, a couple of things, and you know, these are all really thoughtful questions. So just to, to think about you know, again, stepping back at the, at the micro, sorry, at the macro level, uh, not, not the micro. When you think about as a nation, you know, what do we do to defend ourselves? We have, you know, an army for the nation. We have a navy for the, for the nation. We have marines for the nation. 
and we need that to protect ourselves, to be on the defensive side. And while it's very important, I think it's our, in our nation's best interest to have the best educated workforce in the world. I would challenge anyone to say that somehow, you know, it's, it's okay that we're 12th in the world in college graduation rates. It's not. You know, I challenge anyone to say, you know, it's okay that, you know, we rank somewhere between 15th and 30th in terms of, you know, reading and math scores. It's, it's not good enough. Challenge anyone to say it's okay that we're 28th or 29th in terms of access to high-quality early learning. But somehow, as a nation, we haven't embraced the fact that we want to lead the world um, in educational success, in educational attainment, and outcomes. And so there are a couple of things that I would love the nation to focus on. Our goal should be to lead the world in college completion rates. Our goal should be to get high school graduation rates um, as close to 100% as possible and to make sure 100% of those high school graduates are truly college and career ready. Our goal should be to lead the world in access to high-quality pre-K. And then, Fred, I think there's lots of room for vigorous debate about the strategies to achieve those goals. And no one, no one left or right, Republican, Democrat, no one has a monopoly on good ideas. So we should be debating the strategies, not the goals. But as you look at sort of the, uh, you know, the primaries in both parties, how many people are, take, are talking about those goals, those outcomes that would strengthen our nation? So somehow we're just not quite, quite there. And you think about, you know, the, the infrastructure we have, you know, 15,000 school districts, you know, 50 states who are, you know, have tremendous autonomy here and should. But I think the lessons learned, you know, between and across states, you know, the competition isn't, you know, so much Indiana versus Illinois versus Minnesota. The competition is India and China right. and Singapore and South Korea. And, you know, the competition isn't the school district, you know, in over, you know, the next you know, 10 miles away. The competition is it's what's happening in Shanghai today. That's who's competing for jobs for our kids. And somehow, because we are so decentralized, we're so fractured, somehow I think we're, we miss too often the bigger picture here. And I think we should have tremendous, you know, innovation and creativity and sense of, you know, uh, being entrepreneurial at the local level. But we need national goals. We need a national strategy to achieve those goals. And this is about fighting for a strong nation and remaining economically competitive and having a, a vibrant uh, democracy. I worry a lot about income inequality. I worry about a lack of social mobility. And the only answer, the best answer to all of these things is more children have access to a great education. And when we, um, due to historical governance, play small ball, rather look at the big picture, uh, we, not, we, not, we not only hurt kids, um, I think we hurt our nation. You know, speaking of national goals, and I mean, you know this probably better than anybody, uh, one attempt at having some national goals kind of includes the Common Core uh, state standards. When it was rolled out, it was kind of a bipartisan idea. Uh, now, of course, it's come under criticism by certain people. It's a very political issue now. What can you say about uh, Common Core? Well, the truth is, is that high standards are just hugely important. And yes, there has been noise from both the far left and the far right. But the truth is also said that the first time in our nation's history, more than 40 states moved together to raise standards to make sure that students who were graduating from high school would truly be prepared for college. And so this does not solve the world's problems overnight by itself. But it's a huge step in the right direction. And the fact that virtually every state, despite that noise and pushback, from both sides of the political, uh, from the extremes on both sides, 
has stayed the course, I think that's absolutely huge. Um, we worry Fred, a lot about the cost of college, and uh, it is too high in debt. But what folks don't talk about enough is that we spend um, you know, as much as a couple billion dollars each year for high school students to take remedial classes in college, which means they are in college paying college tuition, taking high school classes again that don't give them any credit, that don't help them move to graduation. And when we're spending billions there, there are no winners. Students lose, families lose, taxpayers lose. So the goal uh, of the higher standards was simply to say to states, um, and, and this was determined at the state level, not at the national level, was you just tell us that if students are hitting this mark, our only benchmark was they won't have to take a medial class in college. And if you're an institution of higher education, you know, be it the state university, or University of Texas, whatever it might be, if they can say students making this, hitting this mark won't have to take remedial classes, that's good enough for us. And so at the end of the day, for all the noise, um, there's huge movement in the right direction that I think will pay real uh, dividends, not overnight, but over the long term. Let's take it, let's take it down uh, again to the very personal level. Speaking directly to listeners of this podcast uh, and, and to me as well, what kinds of things can we do as American citizens in our own communities to to support support you to support the kind of activities the Emerson Collective is doing in Chicago to kind of help with hope, opportunity, and, and jobs in, in our own communities. You know, I, I really appreciate the question. It's, it's really thoughtful, and for me, it's 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 honestly it's not about supporting me or Emerson's work. It's really about just trying to give kids a chance in life. And so, you know, to really take it down to a very personal level, you know, can you mentor a child? Can you coach? Can you tutor? And not every child is blessed to have two parents at home. Uh, a lot of kids that I'm working with and concerned about are basically, you know, raising themselves, frankly, from a pretty early age. And they need adults in their lives to steer them in the right direction. And again, absent that, the gangs are always there. You know, the gangs are always there. So everyone in their local communities can be engaged, and whether it's with an elementary you know, child, a child in elementary school, the middle school, a high school, whether it's helping teach them how to read or helping them complete their college applications and fill out their financial aid form. I just think those personal relationships and commitments are, are so important. And I've been, you know, I had uh, two fantastic parents who were well-educated. I grew up in a household filled with books. But since I was 10 years old, I've also had a mentor, a guy named John Rogers, who 41 years later is still my best friend in life. And I've never made a major decision without talking it through with him and getting his honest feedback. He's always told me the truth. It's what, you know, what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. And I think about what an extraordinary impact he's had on my life. And I think, again, I was born with so many advantages. I think about kids who don't have that. So I think you know, relationships matter tremendously. Relationships you know, create hope and help kids see a world that might not be in front of them. So that would be, you know, uh, one huge place to play. Two, we talked about, you know, school boards and, and many of those are elected and having people willing to step up and, you know, be part of that process. I think is so important having the vision of not looking, you know, across town, across state, but across the globe. And are we truly preparing kids to be successful for this world they're, they're entering, for jobs that don't exist yet? And what kinds of, you know, critical thinking skills they need to, to do that? I, and that's huge. And the biggest one, uh, Fred, I would say, you know, particularly with a, you know, a, a presidential election approaching, is I just wish, again, Republican, Democrat, I, I frankly you know, don't care that much. I think education should be the ultimate you know, nonpartisan and bipartisan issue. 
I just wish people went to the voting booth at the federal level, at the state level, and the local level, and voted in part around candidates' commitment to educational outcomes. Um, not to photo ops with babies, not just to visiting schools, but to saying, I commit my political resources and political capital to raising high school graduation rates to this, or increasing early childhood access to this, or raising college graduation rates in my community or state and nationally to this. And I don't blame the politicians. I blame us as voters across the political spectrum. We don't hold them accountable. And so the, the photo, out, photo ops and the sound bites are very easy. I've never heard of an anti-education candidate, but very few walk the walk. Very few walk the walk. And again, at every level, if we went to the voting booth and voted in part based upon a real commitment to improving educational outcomes for all kids, um, that would be huge. That would be amazing. Let me finish with this question. Um, it's again about Chicago, the city of big shoulders, as it's called. What gives you hope about Chicago's future? So for all the challenges, I'm amazing. I'm uh, amazingly hopeful. And I'm hopeful. I'm talking to young men who are incarcerated. I'm talking to young men who have shot others. And while we can't save everyone, not everyone's ready to change, I can't tell you how many are, how many are tired of the violence, how many are scared how many of these young guys are becoming fathers and worried very much about the, the environments that their children are going to grow up in. Um, I'm spending time with amazing pastors and community leaders who don't just work in these neighborhoods. They live in these neighborhoods in the heart of Lawndale, in the heart of Auburn Gresham, and they have devoted their lives and done amazing things to create opportunity. Um, I talk to you know, high school students and middle, middle school students all the time who it's, it's both heartbreaking and hopeful, who tell me that it's not safe for them to go outside anymore. They literally can't go outside. They go to school, they go home, they stay in the house. And as crazy as that is, that's their reality. And despite that, they are still working hard and still getting good grades and still working hard. So there are so many good people out there who aren't numb to the problem, who aren't hiding from the problem, who aren't hopeless, but who every single day in their own ways are trying to create something better. Um, that's how we're going to get there. We're going to get there listening to kids, partnering with kids, empowering kids, and helping them drive us to the solution um, and to the, to the sense of, of peace and community um, that we need. So it is a scary time. It is an unstable time. It is, frankly, an unsafe time. But it is a time I, I am uh, convinced in my heart and my bones of tremendous opportunity as well. And I'm uh, desperately hoping that working together the next couple of years will be much better, uh, not just for the entire city of Chicago, but particularly for those neighborhoods on the south and west sides and for the children who live there. I hope these next couple of years will be much better for them than the past couple. Well, I want to thank you, Secretary Duncan, for your uh, leadership and your commitment to these, these issues. Thanks so much for the thoughtful questions, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again sometime. It was a lot of fun. Also, before you go, I want to congratulate you on receiving the Jefferson Award Foundation's uh, U.S. Senator John Hines Award for Outstanding Public Service by an elected or appointed official. Uh, you join the ranks of uh, former Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and great sociologist and former Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. It was an amazing chance to serve and obviously just a, a privilege of my lifetime. I pinched myself many days for the opportunity. And as, as you know better than anyone, it wasn't about what I did. We had an unbelievable team that was working hard on these issues every single day, a team in the Department of Education, a team at the White House, and you'd be a, a small part of that team. Um, it, it obviously, it, it changed my life and my family's life forever. And 
feel so lucky to have had that, that opportunity, that privilege. Well, thank you again, Secretary Duncan, for your time today. Thanks so much. Have a great day now. You too. You can learn more about Secretary Arnie Duncan on our website, Brookings ADU, and find the Emerson Collective at emersoncollective.com. A group of Brookings experts recently contributed their insight and ideas to a series of blog posts called Rights and Responsibilities, Solutions to the Syrian Refugee Crisis. One of these experts was Bruce Katz, who is the Centennial Scholar at Brookings. I recently sat down with Bruce and asked him how he sees the refugee crisis in Europe and the Middle East. My name is Bruce Katz. I'm the Centennial Scholar at the Brookings Institution. All right, Bruce, so how do cities and nations differ in how they approach the issue of refugees and transnational migrations? So the refugee crisis in Europe has primarily been seen as a national or transnational crisis. And we see Chancellor Merkel and other senior political leaders in Europe uh, meeting to decide how to allocate refugees across nations. At the end of the day, refugees actually go to particular places, particular communities, large cities, small and medium cities, small towns. And these are the communities that ultimately have to do the hard work of responding to the refugees coming in in an immediate, urgent way, the crisis, uh, housing them quickly, getting their kids quickly into school, et cetera, but then beginning to think through, design, in many cases, finance and deliver the long-term integration and assimilation strategies. So our sense uh, from the perspective of a group of people who focus on cities is that the refugee crisis in Europe is ultimately an urban crisis, and whether it succeeds or not will ultimately depend how cities perform. Is, do you have a, uh, an anecdote, a specific example of a city in Europe that is uh, doing these things? So when we look at the German cities, because we've been um, particularly examining the flow of re refugees across the major German cities, Hamburg stands out as a city that has been able to adapt very quickly to very large uh, and, and sort of fierce flows of refugees. Um, now, part of that is because Hamburg is a city-state in Germany. Uh, it has the powers of both a city and a state. Um, and so it's been able to look across all the kinds of activities that you, that you need to design and deliver, housing, education, skills, teaching German as a second language, access to health care, access to mental health, security, police. They're able to look across all these elements and to begin to join them up because when, when, when you think about this, you really need to respond in an integrated and holistic way. Um, and then to engage the private and civic sectors because it just can't be the public sector alone. So Hamburg is doing a whole range of things around coordinating the response, having very ambitious targets around building housing, retrofitting housing. Um, and and I, I find their ability to adapt quickly to be both admirable and hopefully ultimately replicable, not just across Germany but across other European nations. What kinds of resources uh, or support do cities need from the national government? <laughs> well, this is a, the, the question of who pays is a fascinating question. So if you look at Hamburg, um, they are basically spending about a half billion more euros a year to do a whole range of activities uh, to both deal with the crisis of refugees coming in, but also these longer-term integration and assimilation strategies. The federal government is only contributing about 50 million a year. 
of euros. So it's about one-tenth of the spend coming from the federal level. So this is quite remarkable because uh, the responsibilities are highly devolved for addressing the refugee crisis, and actually the funding is highly devolved in Germany. And again, from the news media reports, you would just think that the federal government in Germany or the national government in many other countries are just assuming all responsibilities. You know, in, in American parlance, addressing the refugee crisis is something of an unfunded mandate in Europe. It just flows down to cities, and then cities basically have to scramble, continue to do what they were doing anyway, but also then address uh, this, these new challenges. I think uh, places like Hamburg are adapting very quickly and nimbly. Do you think that the, the leaders at the national level in these countries are adapting to the role of the local and city leaders? Um, we are particularly looking at how the German federal system is adapting, and, and Germany has a particular kind of federalist system because the states basically occupy the upper chamber of the federal legislature, and the states have the right of initiative. So in some ways, the, the federalist system in Germany is almost like an early warning system. A city-state like Hamburg uh, is beginning to deal with issues around housing, issues around other services. And when federal laws are too binding, too constraining, too rigid, they're able to go into the uh, upper body of the German legislature and try to quickly reform and modify the federal laws. Um, this will seem quite strange to an American audience because um, there isn't as much of a dialogue or a formal communication among our different levels of government. You know, governors do come to Washington, D.C., but they take photo ops you know, with the president and same with mayors. In Germany, I think their federalist system is actually more adaptive to these kind of crises. Now, you've been talking about the role of cities in Europe uh, to handle the inflow of refugees. Uh, what about the role of cities in, say, Jordan and Turkey and Lebanon in handling the inflow into their cities from, say, Syria and Iraq, but also the outflow? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think um, one of the challenges we have in the work at Brookings or um, with other partners is we've tended to think about refugee flows into developed cities or cities in developed nations, let's say, quite differently from cities in, quote unquote, developing nations. And, I, I, you know, one um, possibility here is just as with climate change, where you're beginning to see a dialogue um, across cities in so-called north and south, um, I think there's enormous possibility now for, um, for German cities, Swedish cities, cities in some of the frontline states to, to begin to compare and contrast the ways in which they're responding to refugees. Um, so crisis begets innovation, <laughs> to use an off-use term. Um, and I think this may be one of those cases where we break down these uh, traditional ways of demarcating the world and find innovations that can really spread across countries uh, rapid fire. So in terms of the current uh, refugee crisis, what we saw last year, what we see this year, what may happen in the future, what's at stake? Well, there's quite a bit at stake at the, the national level and the geopolitical level from the refugee crisis. I mean, uh, migration and refugees um, are clearly straining European nations and leading to tremendous political upheaval. I think uh, my message is essentially that um, these issues will not get managed at the national level. 
And frankly, they're not even going to get managed at the state or provincial level. The rubber hits the road locally. I mean, that's where ultimately you need to educate a child, house a family, skill a worker, give people access to banking services, give people access to health services. Um, And the local level tends to be highly pragmatic. At the national level, in some respects, you're dealing with almost existential questions. What's a German? What's the... Uh, what's a German border, essentially. At the local level, you're just dealing with issues of existence. How do you house a person quickly? Um, how do you integrate uh, families and workers into the economic mainstream? So I think ultimately what's going to happen with the refugee crisis, as what's happened with the climate crisis, as what's happened with many other issues, is the world is going to respect the, the pragmatism and the affirmative energy of cities And ultimately, what happens at the local level is going to fundamentally change and disrupt how multilateral institutions and national institutions do their work. I think that's a very, very good thing for the world. I think that's a good place to stop. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Bruce. You can listen to last week's episode with Bobby McKenzie, who organized this effort to learn more about this research. In upcoming episodes of this podcast, you'll hear from other scholars who participated in the series. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Dara Taylor, Carissa Nitschi, Bill Fine and Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.